Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello and welcome to the latest iteration of our podcast series. This is Greg Hubler, Director for Sibylline Americas. Delighted to have you join us here again this week. Joining me today, we'll have Eloise Scott, our analyst for Middle East and North Africa, and Phil Riding, our lead analyst for the Middle East and Africa. Thanks to both of you joining me today. Uh, we're going to be talking about the recently declassified U.S. intelligence report confirming that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman proved the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Um, Phil, if I can ask you to please start us off with an overview of the events and issues at play here. Okay, uh, thanks, Greg. Yeah, what we saw last week was the uh, long-anticipated release of a U.S. Uh, declassified intelligence report into the killing of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi uh, in late 2018. And effectively, all the report did was to make public what was common knowledge anyway, which was that the U.S. government believed that the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, was to all intents and purposes, uh, responsible for authorizing the killing of, of Khashoggi himself. And uh, as a consequence, um, the US has imposed some quite limited uh, sanctions on a number of uh, Saudi officials, uh, although these officials are unnamed, so we don't really understand the, the impact of, of those sanctions in the uh, short term. But the notable omission, obviously, from, from, those, from those who are sanctioned is um, Mohammed bin Salman himself. And so the US has come under a certain amount of criticism for, for not backing up, or for Joe Biden not really backing up his, his stronger rhetoric on um, Saudi human rights abuses that he's been voicing for several months before his election and obviously in the aftermath. And so this leaves us in a position where there's a great deal of speculation about what this means for the extent of, of the uh, nature of the US-Saudi relationship, whether or not it will continue to be defined by a certain amount of pragmatism on the US's part, despite obviously, while well, Saudi Arabia having the pariah status that, that to use Joe Biden's term, um, which he outlined before Christmas. So um, obviously we can go on and, and talk about what the implications might be for, for business, but I think it's also relevant to kind of bring in the, the wider uh, regional implications um, for you know, polit political events, including, for example, negotiations towards a new Iran deal and Israel's relationship with the Gulf states, for, for example, that, yeah, that, that may have or may be impacted by the release of the report last week. Perfect. Thank you. And then Eloise, do you have some thoughts on, you know, the broader implications of the report for other Western governments that uh, will be dealing with Saudi Arabia? Thanks, Greg. It's a really good question. I think firstly, it is worth saying, um, sort of reiterating really what Phil said, that obviously this report kind of confirms what was already well known, but obviously hadn't really been made public in this way. And it's clearly highly embarrassing for the Crown Prince, who, as Phil said, is essentially the de facto ruler at the age of 35, particularly as he is really the, the figurehead of his programme at the moment to open up the country to greater investment and opportunities. I think for Western governments, this is clearly part of a wider recalibration of relations for the US. And it's interesting that I think, obviously, there was a lot of criticism, a lot of international backlash at the time of the killing and in the aftermath. But actually, it's not like we've seen many Western governments following suit. Biden, um, as Phil rightly said, has, has been sort of taking these steps even before he came to office 
to set out this recalibration. So he's obviously begun slightly distancing himself from Mohammed bin Salman, instead calling obviously King Salman, um, although this obviously appears sort of largely symbolic at the moment. But I think it is certainly for the US government, it's interesting because we'll have to see in time, I think, how Biden actually upholds his two kind of main policy areas that he's really advancing in the region. Those being sort of defending human rights and freedoms, but also maintaining relations with key regional allies in, in the fight against sort of countering Iran and obviously with the nuclear deal at the forefront of everyone's minds. That's a major policy issue that, that Biden is having to address. But I think it is worth pondering maybe, and again, I think this will come, become clear in time, but how reconcilable these, these two sort of major policy areas actually are. Biden has also halted offensive support to Saudi Arabia with regards to its ongoing offensive in Yemen. But for example, the UK government has, has not followed suit in that. We saw that there was a considerable amount of, of arms sales when the UK resumed its, its arms sales to the kingdom last year. So I think in general, this sort of shifting of, of US-Saudi relations isn't going to have a significant impact on many other Western governments. As I've sort of alluded to, the fact that this kind of, this report didn't reveal anything new. And the backlash, I think, was, was much more severe at the time of the killing. But it is interesting because obviously Mohammed bin Salman is very young. He's, as I said, the de facto leader already and could potentially take power, take over from King Salman in, in a few years time. And I think the fact that he's all been really concentrating power in his hands, we've seen obviously in recent years, purges of other royals. I think governments in the West will really have to pose themselves some questions about how they deal with someone who has really, really centred power around himself. But obviously, as you've sort of alluded to as well, it's, it's very early days and the international community is aware of, of regional, sort of wider regional issues with regards to, in particular, the, the discussions going on in the background between uh, trying to get the US and Iran, including the European signatories of the deal, to a, to a negotiating table. But ultimately, Saudi Arabia obviously remains a key ally. So I think the, the report and, um, and what it's essentially confirmed won't actually have a huge impact um, outside of the US. Thank you. You know, and so... Uh, you know, at risk of oversimplifying, with government positions being, I'll say, trapped within a bit of a rock and hard place between human rights issues and desires for bilateral and multilateral engagements across the region, then as, as you kind of spoke to there, uh, the, I think the question for me then is what sort of impact, you know, will U.S. and other, you know, British and other Western businesses have on their operations in, in the kingdom in, you know, maybe maybe the short or medium term? Yeah, it's another good question. I think businesses will be um, will be well aware of and I'll, I'll let Phil um, speak more to this if he has things to add. But I think reputational concerns have already been at the forefront of a lot of businesses minds, um, not just in the kingdom, but in, in the Gulf more widely. I think obviously, you know, we've seen scandals emerging from from also the UAE, which is considered obviously a financial and, and um, sort of commercial hub for Western businesses um, in the region. So obviously, while this report is hugely significant, it's actually not, not much new. And I think there is almost an interesting paradox that security and defence cooperation currently remains, you know, it's vital at the moment, particularly with, with Western partners uh, and the US and the UK in particular. So even though there are these areas of reputational concern, particularly with um, Saudi Arabia's involvement in Yemen and domestic crackdowns as well. 
these sectors in particular are actually areas where cooperation is unlikely to be greatly reduced, if only due to the threat of Iran. So it is, it is a difficult time, I think, for businesses to navigate, particularly in those sectors that have come under fire from sort of from BDS groups and activist groups that have obviously focused on the impact of arms sales and the use of arms in Yemen. And, and the UK example demonstrates the fact that actually, you know, they've, they've continued with arms sales. And also, I think it's worth noting that the US has obviously said that it will remain committed to supporting Saudi defences. So these key sectors um, and areas of cooperation are, are unlikely to be drastically impacted, even though obviously accusing the de facto ruler of the kingdom of authorising the killing is, is pretty significant. It's worth noting as well that multinationals operating in Saudi Arabia will, will have known these kind of challenges and these implications of working with the kingdom, particularly under someone like Mohammed bin Salman. As, as I said, we've seen these purges of, of other royals, which have been quite controversial and have really attracted the limelight in quite a negative way. But I think, it, it, you know, you could say that actually there are some opportunities for businesses. I think Mohammed bin Salman realises that he clearly needs to ingratiate himself with the Biden administration. And I think he will be well aware and feeling quite anxious, really, that he's got four years of Biden, who is not going to grant him the same impunity that he enjoyed, clearly, under former President Trump. So I think we've already seen this in the sense that we've seen greater diplomatic engagement with Israel. Obviously, Saudi Arabia led the lifting of the blockade on Qatar earlier this year. And we've also seen things like flurries of reforms, including in the legal sphere, and then huge business incentives, which have obviously culminated with in, in what was a sort of veiled threat from Riyadh that, that multinationals not operating out of Saudi Arabia won't get access to these kind of lucrative government deals. But so I think it is interesting that there are, there are long-term issues that have definitely been present for a long time in terms of reputational issues, but actually there are opportunities for businesses, I think, as... Saudi Arabia and, and Mohammed bin Salman in particular really, really now focuses on improving his international reputation that has obviously taken a, a large knock from, from this scandal. Yeah, I think I'd just add to that, it's worth casting our minds back a couple of years and to early, I think, 2019, when really the, the international business community and particularly those in, you know, the senior executives in the, the financial realm were key to sort of rehabilitating Mohammed bin Salman and his international reputation when the Hashoji scandal originally broke, namely at Davos, for example, where they, you know, they sat down with him and, and emphasised effectively that, that the events of the previous months had not impacted their appetite to invest in Saudi Arabia. So um, I very much see the, the course of the next couple of months playing out in, in the same way, which is that the liberalisation of, of the Saudi business environment, which is being driven largely by MBS uh, or Mohammed bin Salman and his um, Vision 2030 strategy is still going to be enticing um, major multinationals to establish a presence there. And, and really the, the reputational concerns that have arisen over Saudi human rights abuses, including this case, um, will not really impact that too greatly. Uh, and yeah, I just sort of second Eloise's point about emphasising the fact that really at the forefront of business, mind, of business people's minds will be the growing kind of rivalry between um, Saudi Arabia and the UAE when it comes to attracting you know the HQs of, of Western businesses to base themselves in, in Riyadh and these various other forms of incentives and you know to some extent coercion that that the Saudi authorities will employ to, to try and persuade um, yeah a greater number of, of um, Western firms to relocate there or relocate their regional presences 
more towards uh, Riyadh and, and less towards Dubai and Abu Dhabi. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's lots going on in Saudi Arabia, but as Eloise quite rightly says, this particular report and the fallout uh, from last week's events um, will not be the primary driver of that. Interesting. Thank you. I, I'm intrigued by the outlook for the scenarios around persuasion versus coercion in, in Saudi efforts to get companies to uh, relocate their, their regional headquarters to Riyadh, device, uh, you know, the other existing hubs in the region. Finally, wrapping up then, uh, you know, just a last question to, to either or to both of you. Any thoughts on what might be any other wider regional implications stemming from this? Yeah, thank you, Greg. The major concern on people's minds at the moment is whether this will embolden Iran and whether this actually shows or whether this is actually slightly counterproductive to Biden's efforts to create, you know, a united front and a strong uh, regional base to counter Iran. It's difficult to say this early on whether this is something that Iran will be able to exploit. And I I think, as, as we've sort of alluded to, Saudi Arabia clearly remains a vital ally in the region. And I think Biden has made it clear that while he is seeking to recalibrate relations, that actually he is is in no way going to compromise on Saudi defences and things. But obviously Iran could test that. And I I think we have seen that in recent weeks, even with with increasing attacks in Iraq, but also there have been um, several incidents in the maritime sphere. So I definitely think this is something that Iran will will possibly seek to, to sort of poke at. Clearly, the focus at the moment with regards to Iran is obviously getting getting the the various parties around a table to prevent further escalations. But then obviously, this is something that we've seen again in in the last few years, whether minor incidents or relatively minor incidents actually spiral and these kind of steady but escalatory incidents, whether these spill over into something more significant. And I think another thing to, to highlight that's quite interesting is the longer term effects or even the, you know the sort of shorter and medium term effects on the conflict in Yemen for example because obviously Saudi Arabia coming under pressure from from Biden to halt these these sort of offensive airstrikes actually has you know we've seen in recent weeks that the Houthis have made considerable gains in Ma'rib governorate which is it's the last real sort of northern stronghold of the Saudi backed government in Aden so again, that, that's another thing that we're playing on uh, Saudi Arabia's minds, and I think also Biden and, and the Biden administration, because clearly that's a conflict that I think both Saudi Arabia and Biden are keen to, to wrap up uh, with, with a sort of peaceful settlement. But with, with the potential for greater fighting around Hodeidah, that is another avenue that, you know, that Iran could potentially open up and exploit. The one thing that may arise in, in the short term is that I guess Mohammed bin Salman himself and his sort of party within El faction within Saudi society may effectively be emboldened and see this as a sign that the US ultimately is is more toothless than they thought it may be under the new Biden administration. So it could lead to a strengthening of ties between the kind of anti-Iran axis, if you if you will, in in the Gulf, which is namely sort of the UAE, Saudi, and and Saudi Arabia and, and Israel. And yeah, there's the possibility that they could be uh, sort of pushed back harder against the US in terms of what they want from any new deal. And I think they, I think despite the rhetoric, they they are 
open to a new deal with Iran, but they'll, you know, but in the wake of this, for example, it might mean that there's greater coordination so that they push back harder on things like, you know, what limits might be imposed on Iran's ballistic missile program, for example, in addition to its its nuclear one. Also, um, you know, bringing in issues like uh, Iran's use of proxies across the region again. If the release of the report last week fosters greater cooperation between Saudi Arabia and Israel, like those, those are sort of two key factors and, and indicators that I would look to. But I, I think just sort of zooming back out again and, and tying back into the US-Saudi relationship. I mean, one possibility that is worth considering is that, you know, this uh, this you know failure to, to sanction Mohammed bin Salman more seriously over the, the over the report that was released last week may be a case of, of short term pragmatism on Biden's part, given that his priority in the short term is to you know start the pro, start the process towards a new deal with Iran, and once that new deal is reached, actually his position on Saudi Arabia might be in a might be in a place where they can harden it up on things like the war in Yemen, as as Eloise outlined, and, and various other factors without endangering this this kind of key uh, it's sort of cornerstone of, of, of his foreign policy which is named namely the finding a new deal with Iran so um, I th- certainly think it's possible that if if and when an Iran deal is brokered that the US-Saudi relationship may go through a more serious recalibration to use Joe Biden's terms or his officials terms than we've seen over the course of the last couple of weeks. Wonderful. Thank you both very much. I think some uh, some excellent food for thought for uh, our, our friends and clients and, and, and other listeners. Very much appreciate the conversation. Always enlightening. Uh, again, uh, Eloise Phil, thank you so much. And we're joined now by Amy Reynolds. Amy, welcome. Thank you so much for joining. Amy's our deputy head of the Insight team based in the UK. Amy, you've got some thoughts to share with us uh, regarding upcoming uh, events to watch and keep in mind. Thanks, Greg. Yes. So we've got a couple of interesting dates on our radar this week. So on Monday, the 8th of March on the Korean Peninsula, a US-South Korea joint military exercise is scheduled to begin and will last for nine days. And North Korea, which has frequently complained about the annual drill in the past, could respond to this with some saber-rattling activities, um, such as maybe a missile launch or artillery firing. Um, The period around the drill always represents a sensitive time for heightened tensions on the peninsula. Though this year, the scaled-down version, which we expect to be mostly conducted via computer simulation, will likely help to temper the associated security risk there. And then shifting across to Europe, there's a nationwide general strike scheduled for the 7th and 8th of March in Italy to demand better pay and better working conditions. And also in conjunction with a smaller strike targeting discrimination against women in the workplace with next Monday, of course, being International Women's Day. And it seems likely that the strike is going to be across the entire public sector. So civil servants, education, healthcare, which are all basically the areas that Prime Minister Draghi has promised to do better in. So yes, there'll there'll certainly be potential for associated disruption there for businesses operating in these sectors. Wonderful, thank you. And, you know, uh, kind of more broadly elsewhere, are there other potential hotspots for uh, unrest and, and disruption? Yes, indeed. So another one for Monday, the 8th of March, busy day, um, this time in Nigeria. Um, the trial of Ibrahim al-Zakzaki, who's, reli- who's the leader of the religious organization in the Islamic movement of Nigeria, will reconvene. 
Um, and he's been charged on various counts, including culpable homicide. And there's a decent chance that supporters of the group and of its leader will launch protests in central Abuja and in Kaduna, where the trial is taking place as a result, which would likely provoke violent clashes with the police that could bring disruption um, and could endanger nearby property and bystanders. And then I think lastly, it's also worth mentioning Georgia once again, which we highlighted last week, but I think still deserves attention given the continuation of the country's political crisis and the associated unrest. The latest in Georgia is that the opposition have announced various upcoming protests, including specifically pickets of government offices on the 5th of March, rallies outside of the Interior Ministry on the 9th of March and outside of the Tbilisi City Court on the 11th of March, and then another demonstration outside of Parliament on the 13th of March. So a few dates in close succession to note there. And we don't currently anticipate any large-scale violence, but clashes with police in the city centre in particular certainly do remain possible. Thank you, Amy. Um, and of course, uh, closer to home, at least, you know, home for me here in the United States. On Monday, we also have beginning of the trial against Derek Chauvin, who is going to be tried for secondary murder and secondary manslaughter for the death of George Floyd. That'll be taking place up in Minnesota. There's, there's certainly uh, a high degree of concern for localized disruptions around downtown and the Minneapolis Twin City area there, uh, and likewise, uh, potential risk of likely, I would say, you know, low-level protests around the topic uh, in other places around, around the country as well. Thanks, Amy. Uh, and to our clients and friends and listeners, thank you as always to joining us in our weekly conversations. Uh, we welcome your follow-up questions and thoughts, so please do get in touch uh, with any, any feedback or questions you'd like to share, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks so much. <laughs>